utter disbelief is not an uncommon reaction to receiving a Nobel Prize. There will be plenty of proof of that in this special episode of Nobel Prize Conversations, taped in front of a live audience at Nobel Week Dialogue in Gothenburg. This episode will feature Klaus Hasselmann, the 2021 Physics Laureate, who received the prize for developing climate models to reliably predict global warming. He shares the prize with Sukuru Manabe and Giorgio Parisi. Klaus Hasselmann is a professor emeritus of the University of Hamburg and a former director of the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology. All this despite failing physics as a schoolboy and struggling with his confidence as a scientist. We'll also hear and discuss some highlights from this year's announcement interviews with his fellow 2021 laureates who offer their fair share of disbelief, shock and excitement. This special live episode of Nobel Prize Conversations was produced with the help of Carl Benetabi, the City of Gothenburg, Ericsson, Region Westerjötterland, and Volvo Group, and our supporting foundations, the Carlsberg Foundation and the Sten A. Olsen Foundation. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. Before his conversation with Professor Hasselman, Adam speaks to this podcast producer, Cardin Svensson, about how to converse with a Nobel laureate and the thrill of getting a glimpse into what life can be like minutes after that transformative call from Stockholm. First, he explains to the audience what Nobel Prize Conversations is all about. It's a way of getting to know the Nobel laureate a little better. And I suppose when we're having these, we're thinking very much of the individual listener, somebody who can just absorb some of what the laureate has to say in a, in a nice, gentle manner. And what is the difference between having a conversation with a Nobel laureate compared to a regular person? At one level, uh, no difference. I mean, regular people have lovely things to say and Nobel laureates have lovely things to say. And if you're lucky and you get the day right and the conversation right, nice things happen. But I suppose that two essential differences are one, the laureate has done something amazing and you know that in the background during all the conversations. So it's fascinating to hear anything that in any way kind of reflects on what their achievement is. The other thing is that laureates tend to have to have lots and lots and lots of conversations. And because of that, I suppose they become quite practiced in telling their stories. So some of the time you find that I think that they just have a particularly fluent way of getting ideas across. So you recently made a special episode of another one of your many jobs, which is ringing up the laureates very soon after they've been made aware, they've been given the prize, and you catch them sometimes five minutes after they've gotten that uh, call. We recorded this in September, so you've had a bunch of calls after that with the 2021 laureates, and I think we're going to start by focusing a little bit on them and listening to some of the, the best bits of those conversations. So first, I just want us to listen to the joy and disbelief of uh, David Macmillan, the laureate for chemistry. Did you actually get the call from Stockholm? I know I didn't. I got a text from someone in Stockholm that where my name was wrong, and 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 I assumed it was a prank call. I've had a lot of mischievous ex coworkers over the years, so I just assumed it was one of them having a, a prank. So I I actually just went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and when did the news actually reach you? Well, the news reached me because actually the the other 
winner, Ben West, also was trying to contact me. I contacted him. He told me what was happening, and I said I actually didn't believe him too. I thought maybe the same person was pranking him. So I I basically bet him a thousand dollars that this was not happening. I went back to sleep, and then woke up with my phone going crazy, and I was a thousand dollars down, but a very happy person. In what way is this a typical call? Well, I might turn that around and say what's atypical about that is that he had the coolness to go back to sleep after being told he'd been awarded the prize and not believing it.、Um, the call that comes from Stockholm is pretty disruptive, and this year, of course,、uh, there were quite a lot of American laureates, and、uh, it's particularly disruptive in the middle of the night when it comes at sort of three or four a.m. So it throws everything into confusion. I think very few people are actually expecting it. You know, even obviously you don't expect it that year, but you know, even thinking that it's going to happen sometime. So you just catch them in that moment of just disbelief and wonder about the whole thing that's going on. But it is pretty cool to go back to sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. And one thing I love about these calls as well is they offer a glimpse into sort of the everyday life of someone who's just had a very non-everyday life experience. And therefore, I wanted us to listen to、uh, the call with David Julius, the medicine laureate. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> yes. Well, very much morning for you. <laughs> yes. So my name's Adam Smith. I'm calling from NobelPrize.org, and、um, we have this tradition of recording just. Very short interviews with new laureates. Would you mind、okay. speaking? No, let me just finish pouring some water into my coffee maker because that's going to be essential in the next, and then I'll be with you. <laughs> <laughs>、okay. All right, I'm good. I think,、okay. I think, yeah, that is the tip that surely passed from laureate to laureate. You need coffee to survive this day. Coffee, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, how did the news actually reach you? Well, it was actually quite strange. <laughs> I was nicely asleep, and、uh, my phone, which I had by my bed, going,、ah! and there's an, a text in there from my sister-in-law, and she says,、uh, "Let's see, I'll look at the text. It says、um, something like,、um, 'Someone's been trying to reach you by the name of Thomas Perlman,' <laughs> and、uh, I didn't want to give him your phone number,、uh, but here's his phone number." Yeah. And she said, "I looked him up on the web. He seems like a reasonable guy, <laughs> or something like that." It came on my wife's phone too, so she kind of woke up. And I said, "What do you think about this?" So she called, and he said, "I've been trying to get a hold of David." <laughs> so then I spoke to him, and he said, "I have about three minutes, and I'm so happy to talk to you, but I now have to go out and do the announcement. So call me back in an hour." Anyway, so that's how it happened. That's an absolutely marvelous story, and how wonderful to have two <laughs> gatekeepers protecting you—your sister and exactly, your wife. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so once the news had got to you, what was the first thing you did?、Um, well, then Thomas said you should go to the to the YouTube and watch the announcement. So that's the first thing I did.、Okay. Sat here in the kitchen and watched the announcement. Some, yeah, <laughs> and then uh, and then um, I made a couple of phone calls to some close colleagues or texts. And by, but by that time, you know, I was my phone was blowing up, as they say. So. Uh, so I haven't had much time to do much else. I talked to my mom. That's very important. Yeah, indeed. And、uh, what does she say? Know, she's like overwhelmed. You know, says this is just unbelievable. She said, but you know, you work so hard. You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That, she's behaving exactly、yeah. as a mother should do. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she's very proud, and she's、um, probably a little bit in shock, as we all are. And then my brother called me, and you know, so it's been. 
an exciting hour or so. It sounds wild and lovely. What was that like for you to get the glimpse into someone's life like that? Well, it's lovely. I mean, as you can see, not much happens on these calls. You don't kind of get into any deep conversations. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just fun to let, let them tell you how it happened. Um, they're very excited by it. The two places you can go on those calls are that or their work. I mean, if you ask them, tell me about your work, then they, they find that safe territory in a time of turmoil. So they can, you know, then go off at length talking about, you know, what they've done. But you don't really want to talk about that at that moment. You just want to experience that, um, that joy. Um, the, the comment about what his mother said reminds me of medicine laureate Peter Agre, who was um, immediately after he heard the news, he, he cleverly thought, I better get washed if this is going to hit me. And so his wife took the call from his mother. And his mother apparently told his wife, well, that's all very nice, dear, but don't do tell Peter not to let it go to his head. <laughs> Typically a mother. Yes. I'm also wondering about the, um, so the, the, the aspect of you calling them at this ungodly hour, which you've mentioned. And I wanted to, to listen to, to Adam Pataputin, the medicine laureate this year, when you ask him, because sometimes you ask them quite uh, profound questions at this time of the hour. So let's see how he responds. Last question. What's, what do you think the secret of your, research, your successful research environment is? <laughs> um... It's two in the morning. It's difficult for me to <laughs> say very intelligent things right now. But I think it's uh, the environment, the people around you, and um, just to kind of uh, focus on big questions that can be answered. In science, many times we, we focus on the big questions, but if you have to ask it at the right place and the right time where the tools are present to answer those questions. Thank you. That was, I think it was a very intelligent answer for any time of the day, let alone 2am. So <laughs> thank you very, very much indeed for talking to me. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> I got carried away there. <laughs> I shouldn't be asking that sort of question at 2am, for sure. When it, when it goes well and, you know, Adam was just being very lovely and you, know, you just get excited and start asking bigger questions but yeah you you need to know when to stop but it's interesting because we, we talk about how these conversations are quite sort of um we don't talk about much because it's just the situation but they can also turn into quite profound conversations sometimes and i'm thinking of the interview you did with benjamin list uh, on the day of the announcement you caught him in a, in a cafe or during his holiday with his wife and you talked about his reaction but then he started talking about his uh, his colleagues and his uh, work environment and let's listen to that i think i'm not a slave driver and i'm not saying work harder work harder work day and night it's not my philosophy i also encourage them to think and and to enjoy life and and for example we Whenever we have something to celebrate, we celebrate it. Like we like to occasionally when somebody has a nice little discovery, then, then we have a little party in our seminar room. And, and I, I think the people that have joined me over the years, they are in line with this, with this spirit. And we had recently, we had, we had our international dinner last week where my group, of course, is, it's, it's composed of many different nationalities. And each of them brought a special food from his her own country and there was this moment that we tried all the food and, and everybody gave a little speech about you know the style of his country and, and this internationalism and respect for each other this diversity and there was this moment i was among my graduate students and i, I had goosebumps bumps on on my head because i was enjoying this so much to work with these amazing 
happy and creative people. It's it's such a gift already. And yeah, that's that's my sort of philosophy about you know freedom in science and, and how, how creativity uh, is formed. Thank you so much. In this brief call, we've talked about family, beauty, dreams, friendship, yeah. society. Yeah. Yeah. It's, what an advertisement for science. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Sure, it may be a bit unexpected. Like, but I come from a family of artists and scientists, and so we always have, have sort of both sides in my family. Huh. Lovely. Well, I hope we'll have the chance to talk more. But for now, that's fantastic. Thank you very Wonderful. much indeed. And congratulations. Thank you very much, Adam. It's a pleasure to talk to you. How does that make you feel? Listen to that again. It's nice, isn't it? It's it's the, the I suppose that it illustrates the point that you just don't know where you're going to go. I mean, like any conversation with anybody, it's not programmed. It's not like an interview with a set of questions where this is you know this is what we're going to get through. It's just a conversation. It's just we'll we'll find where it leads, and if they're receptive and if they're in the mood, it works. And the other thing about that Ben List call, which was so extraordinary was that it really was very quick, soon after he'd heard the news. And he was in this cafe with his wife having lunch when he got the call. And he took a selfie of himself and his wife immediately after he had heard this news. And what's nice about that is you've got the two of them sitting at their cafe table in a selfie pose, and around them are diners right next door to them having their lunches. And they're kind of avoiding looking at these two people taking a selfie. But they have no idea what's just happened, that this person in the cafe has become a Nobel laureate. And it, it's a, it captures the sort of su the surprise of the whole thing. It's nice. That's, you can get that on NobelPrize.org. It's a nice selfie. But this is just one example of how the call sort of makes you want, crave for more when you're listening. You want to, to have a deep conversation, which is great because we have a format where we, can, where we can sort of funnel them into that as well. And, I'm, I'm, and we have such a conversation in store. This is what it sounded like when you called physics laureate Klaus Hasselmann on the day of the announcement. How do you feel about the conferment of the Nobel Prize and the fact that that will suddenly um, direct a great deal of attention to yourselves and, of course, yet more attention to the problem on which there is already much attention. I'm very happy that they direct uh, the attention on the climate problem, which is very important. Um, whether they direct uh, the attention on myself, I don't know. or see, see what happens. Uh, I, probably not. I forget so many things that, that the journalists will probably give up pretty soon interviewing me. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I think people will be banging on your door for some time to come. <laughs> Should we speak a little bit more to Mr. Hasselman? Let's speak to Professor Hasselman. Klaus, can you hear me okay? I hear you very well. Lovely. Can you hear me? I can hear you beautifully. I'm just trying to make sure that your picture appears for our audience at some point. You're sitting in this, in, in this lovely setting. Tell, tell me, where are you sitting, in fact? I'm sitting in my study to go with my wife. Uh, we both have our desk here. And uh, yeah, that's uh, where we sit and work. Lovely. We just played a, a brief clip from the conversation that you and I had on the morning of the announcement of your Nobel Prize, in which you said, um, I think journalists will give up wanting to talk to me pretty soon. I guess that hasn't happened yet. Yes, <laughs> I was quite surprised, yes. <laughs> But the, the calls keep coming. I imagine you've been spending a great deal of time over these past two months speaking to journalists and everybody. Yes, well, uh, I had a lot of interaction with many, with many colleagues and friends, so uh, we were quite busy, but uh, I wasn't expecting a prize status. No, of course not. 
I gather you've just been in Berlin receiving your your Nobel Prize. Yes, I was there. Mm-hmm. How was that? Well, it was quite confusing. Many people and uh, lots of things to say, you talk to. And uh, I woke up next day and it was still true. So I guess it must have happened. Yes. <laughs> I think, yes. Now, now t- t- two months on, I think, yes, it's, it's definitely happened. <laughs> so I'd like to explore a little bit the path that led to the Nobel Prize, if we may. What was it, do you think, that turned you on to science in the very first place? I was always interested in science. I had a physics professor who was terrible, and uh, what I remember from him was saying, has some detention at four, but otherwise uh, I always enjoyed physics independent of the school. I was just interested in how things worked, and uh, I built my own crystal detector. There was a radio where you could uh, hear music and voices without power, which surprised me, so uh, I became interested in how all these things worked and essentially got into physics just out of curiosity, independent of my school. That's very interesting. The crystal set has been, I think, a lot of scientists' path into science in the past. I don't know what the modern equivalent of the crystal set would be because it's a, it's a very fundamental piece of kit which you really have to sort of understand in order to make work. What do you think? Yeah, so it's quite a mystery to me. So uh, that's a really way I got into physics, uh, independent by normal school teaching. So uh, I guess now there's nobody knows what a crystal set is anymore, but uh, that was quite a sort of standard thing of young people at that time. Were you a good student? No, I was a sort of a somewhat better than average student at, uh, at a grammar school in England. Hmm. And that's a point. You, so you were a student in England. Explain why that was the case. Well, my father was a social democrat and disapproved of the Nazis, and the Nazis disapproved of him. So he left Germany, Hamburg, in 1934 when I was just three years old. So I essentially grew up in England. But my father always remained German. I wanted to return to Germany, which he did after the war. So uh, I grew up in England. was very happy there. But I always retained my German citizenship. Even during the war, I had no problems. It's good to hear you had no problems. Why did the family return to Germany? Because you'd, you'd been in, in the UK for, what, 15 years or so. So it was quite a... Yes. It was, it, so you'd grown up there, you were English, or at least you sounded English and you kind of had absorbed England. And I guess the family had become naturalised to some extent. So why did, why did you go back? Well, I always wanted to go back to Germany to find out what my roots were, so to speak. Although I was very English and I was very happy in England, I never gave up my German citizenship. And my father also wanted to return to Germany after the war. So I came back in 1949 to the bombed out to Hamburg and uh, from a beautiful wedding garden city, 20 miles north of London. And so uh, back to a uh, bombed out in Hamburg. But I wanted to find out what my roots were. I'm not quite sure what I am. I'm half English, half German, but uh, I grew up with both cultures, so to speak. Nice to have both perspectives. It must have been quite a stark transition from a garden city to a bombed out city. Can you describe what it felt like to make that transition? Well, it was a, a pretty much of a shock. As you say, I grew up in a garden city uh, with a beautiful semi-detached house with a nice garden and, uh, and gardens all around me and a very relaxed place. And uh, I came back to Germany, looking out of the window, nothing but bombed-out uh, homes. And uh, so it was a really big change. 
I was happy to, to learn out what my roots were. Tell me about your terrible physics teacher. What was wrong with him or her? Well, uh, he came into the, the classroom the first time I met him, just the time that I had thrown a wet sponge at some colleague of mine in front of the blackboard, and he opened the door and came in, and, and the sponge just missed him. And uh, he asked, uh, uh, what's your name? I said, Hasselman. And uh, unfortunately, my sister had just uh, run over him with his bicycle just uh, an hour before. So that was my introduction to my physics teacher. And I had a tough time with him uh, through my school days. Wow. It seems quite a long time to bear a grudge over a wet sponge. Well, uh, he had a grudge against many people. And uh, I also made them a sense when he came in and we had to choose our places in the lab, and I chose a place it's directly in front of the window where I could look out on the sports field. And uh, that was his first impression of this guy was sitting at the window, looking out the window, not interested in the work at all. So I guess I was not very uh, diplomatic in my approach to the Phoenix teacher. <laughs> but uh, we got on the end and found together, no problem. <laughs> yeah, look at you now, so to speak. So yes. But the transition to studying physics at university... When you arrived in Germany, when you arrived back in Hamburg, was it obvious to you that you were just going to go off and become a, an academic physicist? No, it was not obvious to me at all. And it wasn't obvious to me that you had to work when you come to university. And I had the impression uh, from the colleagues that I knew went to Cambridge in England that you just strolled around the parks. And, and I did this for about a month or two until I suddenly realised that I was missing all the basic courses and then I finally started working. But uh, no, I, I had a rather relaxed approach to work at that time. So, uh, but no, I met some very interesting friends there. We got engaged in physics as a subject, uh, <laughs> independent of the actual uh, official workload. I'm interested also in your in your choice of subject. So, when you did become a, a, a serious physicist, if you like, and you were doing your doctorate and then your postdoc work, you went for this slightly niche rather complicated subject of fluid dynamics, as opposed to some of the things that were more trendy, popular. Um, why did you pick a niche area to work in? Well, first of all, I didn't have the self-confidence to go into basic physics, of, of particle physics and so forth. So that sort of scared me off. And I went to a field where I thought I could contribute something, which was in dynamics and ocean waves. And uh, so that was really... Uh, a lack of confidence, I would say, to get into the more basic uh, problems of physics. I suppose you thought you'd end up working in oceanography, in, in something to do with waves and, I don't know, ships or, you know, uh, th this is where it looked like it might lead. What did you think you would contribute when you started? Oh, I, I didn't think very much what I contribute. I just enjoyed doing things. And uh, actually, somebody asked me when I was about 17 what my goals in life were. And I said, oh, the Nobel Prize, I think. But no, I, I never really had serious uh, ambitions in this direction. Mm. It just developed this way. Mm. How did the move towards this extraordinarily complex sort of systems approach happen? That you were working in fluid dynamics on, on waves in the sea, and then somehow that gradually opens out into studying climate models of the whole planet and how they interact with weather and coming up with, you know, the model for how climate change can be seen as against the pattern of local changes in weather. 
Um, that's an enormous transition from, a, as I said, a niche subject to something that is absolutely vast and complex. How did that happen? The whole question of how uh, long ocean waves occur produced by, by wind locally and uh, then propagated across the entire ocean was something which I just found a fascinating subject. And also I, I liked the swimming in the ocean and so forth. So the physics of waves connected to weather, it was uh, an issue area, I would say, where I thought I could maybe contribute at the same time enjoy the science. That's nice. I like the thought of you swimming and thinking about the physics of waves at the same time. Most of us go swimming and probably just think about whether there's a jellyfish around or something, but not, not the physics of waves. Talk about the pleasure of swimming, please. Well, uh, I enjoy swimming and the fact that uh, we were living in uh, California at that time, so we had these beautiful long waves coming in from across the Pacific, and the question of whether they came from and why were they so long and... Uh, so the whole question of the origin of, of ocean waves naturally, as a physicist, uh, attracted my attention. And I had a, a boss at that time who was interested in oceanography, and so that also stimulated my interest in this subject. So all these things came together essentially to uh, stimulate my activity in ocean wave dynamics as a physicist. Would you say you're self-confident now? Uh, I, I guess I must be, yes. I'm self-confident now that I have the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Give me some self-confidence. Now, actually, I've been director of an institute for several years, so I have self-confidence that I... Well, I have the ability to pass over the responsibility of getting things done to good colleagues. A lot of confidence has been needed in order to convince people in all sorts of different spheres of the actual reality of our changing climate. For decades, there was disbelief. People just didn't think that what we were seeing was a true anthropogenic change, that it was um, just weather patterns. And you needed a lot of confidence to, to just keep telling that story and keep trying to persuade people, didn't you? Yes, but the scientists were really clear of the situation uh, since the uh, early 70s, we actually have climate change and we should be doing something about it. And uh, I was very confident, very, 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 very uh, fortunate that I had some very good uh, colleagues, Mojit Latif and Hartwood Gossel, who were very good in, in uh, transmitting the importance of climate change and the impact of man's activities on climate to the public. So I could pass over the responsibility of this communication to a very effective scientist, and uh, there were some good, of course, uh, uh, public media that supported this. And uh, I was uh, fortunate I could carry on with my science uh, with very good colleagues who would transmit the importance of the climate problem to the public. And having been involved in this conversation for so long, how hopeful are you feeling that the the true understanding of the of the necessities ahead, of the task ahead, is, is there. In other words, how confident are you that the conversation is succeeding? I myself am very confident 
the, the public and the, uh, the policymakers will understand the problem and they will realize this and will respond in time. My wife is much more skeptical, thinks this is unlikely to happen. But I also have much confidence in the young people, the fighters of the future and so forth, that have a very good way of bringing this across to the public. My wife is sitting next to me and she is more skeptical. But uh, well, I think we're probably, we're probably typical of the public as a whole, which is divided in, in this direction. I think since your wife is sitting next to you, we should at least uh, hear from her. I think, so, uh, Susanna, you're there, are you? Um, I don't know if you can come into frame. Hello, how, ni- how, nice, how nice to meet you also, Susanna. Um, nice to meet you. <laughs> since you've been described as sceptical by Klaus, would you, would you agree with that description? Well, I don't, I don't think I'm sceptical. I'm uh, realistic. <laughs> and if you just uh, see what came out of uh, the Glasgow conference, you will doubt that people were alive really reached the 1.5 degree, which was uh, agreed on in Paris. Of course, it's uh, important to that the public wakes up because the public is the voters. However, uh, now in Germany, it's uh, very interesting. It's not young against old, but it's uh, the kids who voted the first time. They voted more for the free Democrats and not for the Greens. The uh, young people between 20 and 30, the liberals and the greens were about the same amount. Mm. And only after people became 30, the greens, the voters were more. So uh, this makes me a little skeptical too about uh, the, the young people. They want to change something, but they don't want to change their own behavior. Yeah. I think it's a, a matter, very much a matter of uh, changing values and changing habits because there are a lot of things uh, in life which are just wonderful to do. You don't have to fly over the weekend to Mallorca or something. You can take your bicycle and uh, drive and ride through Germany, which is beautiful and things like that, see? Yes, the future lies in the hands of the young, but then the young have to make the right decisions. That's difficult. And so since we have the two of you together, I want to go back to this topic of what the last two months has been like. Until that day in October, life was just you know, going on as normal. And suddenly things do change when the prize is announced and you get a lot of attention. Has that attention been just wholly lovely or has it at times been just a bit much? Well, it, uh, it was, was really too much. The prize was publicly announced at a quarter to 12 and at 12 o'clock the first journalist was in front of our door. And this went on the one after the other. So we had to find out first how we, we can, uh, can manage this. My husband, uh, when he went into his uh, emails, he agreed on all the, uh, <laughs> all the interviews. <laughs> but uh, then my daughter and I decided that we forbid him to go into his emails and she, she would, <laughs> would uh, clarify the uh, well, the rough part, and then she sends over to me what uh, she thinks. Uh, so that, that's that's good. So he was just too nice. He was too too agreeable. I see. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he is good natured and he is an optimist. <laughs> so he thought uh, that he could do them all, but uh, this didn't work. Well, so I think we managed quite well then at the end. Once we got organised. Yeah, you've got to a sort of modus vivendi where you you can make things work. I'm a good wife. You take care. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess that's uh, we, earlier in the conversation when I was speaking with Karen, uh, um, our producer, we were talking about one of the necessities of getting through that first day when you hear about the prize is getting a cup of coffee. And that's one of the unspoken sort of uh, rules of being a new laureate, you need coffee. But another unspoken rule is that you need partners. You need a good husband or wife or somebody to help you navigate all this. It is so often something that laureates will say that uh, you can't do it without help, family support. It's very hard. Yeah. I want to ask you about Berlin, about the trip to Berlin to get the prize. You've actually got your medal there with you, haven't you? Can we see it? Magnificent. Look at that. <laughs> and when did you receive that? Just, just two days ago, right? Yes. It's beautiful. Is it heavy? It's heavy, yes. <laughs> Where are you going to keep it? What are you going to do with it? I haven't decided yet. <laughs> haven't decided, yes. It's a valuable no. thing to have hanging around, but it's, it's a, yeah, a special thing. How was the occasion of the award ceremony? Because it was a bit strange this year. No Stockholm, no concert hall for the award ceremony with the king and all the rest of it. Rather different. How, how was it? It was very impressive how the Landeslandschaft and the Queen uh, Embassy organised this. I yes, think they yes. did really a marvellous job and it was very, uh, what we call, feierlich. And so it was very impressive, I would yes. say, yes. Klaus is like, like he is in a dream, you know. It's, it's <laughs> all not, not really real for him. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Well, that's nice. And, uh, but now you have the medal in the box, so in case, the, yes. in case things seem unrealistic, you can open the box and touch the medal. Yes, that's very special. Lovely. It's been an enormous pleasure speaking to you both. Thank you very much indeed. And I know the audience here um, that we're sitting with in this room in Gothenburg um, have greatly enjoyed the conversation too. I'm sure they would like to also show their appreciation. So unusually, I think the first time a podcast has ever ended with a round of applause, but here I think we'd like to end it that way. So thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You just heard a special live episode of Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Julier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. You can hear Nobel Prize conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Choose from dozens of conversations with laureates representing all six prize categories. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.